but I said that we will be successful if we can make one person's life better for reading this book. If one athlete can tell a toxic coach to F off with their garbage <laughs> approach, then they, that athlete will be better. She won't have to, you know, succumb to some of these unrealistic pressures, these age old myths, and she will be embodying herself to her fullest potential. And that's, it's not just about telling people off, it's about finding your potential and following your own path. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Elizabeth Carey. Elizabeth is a writer, editor, author, and running coach based in Seattle, Washington. She ran Division I cross-country and track at Columbia University, and it was her experiences as an elite-level collegiate athlete that inspired her to become a leading voice in the world of girls and sport. Burnout culture, work till you drop, unhealthy and unrealistic body expectations, and so on were all things she experienced while at Columbia. Since leaving college, she's made it a point as both a coach and a writer to spread the word on how to best coach female athletes to help them perform and feel at their best. Most recently, this came into the form of a book titled Girls Running, which she co-authored with former high school running phenom Melody Fairchild. In this interview, we get into how she stumbled upon her love of running, her experiences both positive and negative as a student athlete at Columbia, her philosophy as a running coach, and her new book, Girls Running. And so, without further ado, my interview with Elizabeth Carey. Elizabeth, thanks for coming to the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So let's start this off at the beginning here. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in Portland, Oregon, um, and that is on Clackamas and Cowlitz native land. Um, but in the southeast corner of the city that is Portland. It's a beautiful little spot. Okay. Have you always been in the Pacific Northwest? No, I've actually moved um, all across the country, and um, but my entire youth was in Portland. So until I went away to college and went to New York City, um, most of my time was in Portland. Got it. Okay. So... Were you kind of, were you embracing the, I guess, classic Pacific Northwest lifestyle, like active and healthy? Was that like a big part of your, I guess, growing up? Yeah, definitely. My parents love doing outdoor things. They weren't, say, mountain climbers, but we fished. They made me go bird watching. We'd hike. We'd go to the Oregon coast. Um, so it, it looked... Um, like a lot of time outside, which was great. Got it. And did you play a lot of different sports growing up too? <laughs> no, um, my parents <laughs> were uh, not super into the competitive sports, like on the team side, but my dad did take up running in the jogging boom in Oregon in like the eighties or whenever it hit. So he would go on a run every day. My mom was always walking. She used to run a little bit too. Um, and so I had some exposure to like, you know, that sport, um, but it wasn't until elementary school, kind of on the late side that I started playing soccer. And by that time, everyone else had been playing soccer since they were like toddlers. So, right. um, I, yeah, you know, I was grateful for that experience, but, you know, I didn't really do a lot of team sports. Interesting. Okay. And so was it your... Um, your dad and your parents that was what got you into running? Actually, no. Um, they never pressured me or, you know, in, I mean, I guess I would, I never really went on jogs or anything with my parents. Um, but my friend, I have a friend 
from middle school who started at the same high school as I did. And we both were kind of behind the eight ball compared to our peers when it came to the team sports situation. Right. And so he was just outgoing and courageous and we decided somehow that we were just going to try new things. And so together we signed up for volleyball in the fall as freshmen and I got most inspirational. So needed to take the hint that I wasn't. <laughs> and then we signed up for a swim team, which was hard, but fun. We had a great coach and then we did track together. And then I kind of, just stumbled into this amazing sport. We had such a fabulous coach who was really positive and um, uplifting and, and really got us sucked into the sport really quickly. Um, it was great. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like for lack of trying other sports, it's just what you, what you stumbled upon when you stumbled upon it. Yeah, definitely. And I think just the team culture was awesome. And it was a fit right away. I, I won my first race. And um, I got kind of addicted to that. Yeah, that yeah. Was fun to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so would you describe yourself as a talented runner? I perhaps would say that, um, especially since I just kind of like accidentally won. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I had some talent, um, but I also had, and I think everyone says this, but they, you know, I had a pretty strong work ethic. Um, so I was willing to, to put in some work. And I mean, that's not to say like when I, that first race that I won was after some very hard work, because when I went out for the track team, I could barely run 20 minutes without stopping. <laughs> so, you know, from going, from that situation, from, you know, struggling to finish 20 minutes to winning my first 1500 was, was pretty cool, <laughs> but it did take some work. Right. And where do you think that work ethic, uh, came from or comes from? Um, I would say definitely my parents and also society. And, uh, the more I'm learning about, um, like anti-racism and whatnot, I feel like our culture, especially white culture, just really prizes our work ethic. You know, that that's mm -hmm. a thing. And uh, I am still, or I would say I'm a recovering workaholic and <laughs> something that I'm um, definitely trying to work on now, but sure. it was just crazy. And, and, you know, and my parents uh, had high expectations of me and I had high expectations of myself. So I fully bought into that and um, fully embraced the, the idea or the hope that the harder I worked, the more I would get out of it. Right. I mean, it's certainly not a bad thing to, to buy into working hard. Uh, totally. I yeah, think yeah. there's a balance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, of course. Of course. And so outside of running, what were your, what were some of your like other passions growing up? I loved to read. Um, okay. I was always reading, especially um, once I was old enough, I got into like murder mysteries and Agatha Christie's and those sorts of books. Um, and I also loved to write. So I was always scribbling in my journal or writing dear diary and talking about my day or my adventures. Yep. Um, and I was an only child, so I kind of had to learn how to entertain myself um, or tag along with my parents. Like I said, bird watching or hanging out with their their friends. And um, so I definitely uh, was bookish. Got it. Okay. And so fast forwarding a bit here, you end up going to college at Columbia. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And how was that? Or why did you choose Columbia? Oh man, I was really looking for a challenge, um, both academically and athletically. And I had a desire to really explore and try something new. Um, like I had mentioned, I'd spent most of my life or all of my life in Portland. Right. And I was ready for something more, something bigger. And it just sounded like such an incredible opportunity. Um, and I felt like I couldn't pass it up. Right. And did you ever have, um, I guess, that really big city feel before you went to Columbia? Or is that something completely new once you got there? 
I would say I did my I did a little bit of traveling with my family, um, and I was very lucky to be able to go on some trips. And we went to Europe, and my my dad was a professor and a teacher, um, and very into history and politics. So when we went on trips, we would do a lot of, we'd go to like, we went to London and went to museums and stuff. So I feel like I had been exposed to some of that. And we'd okay. also come up to Seattle. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, is growing up, people acted like Portland was a big city. And I mean, compared to New York, it's not. <laughs> so <laughs> that was my real first big city experience, I would say, especially on my own. Right, right. And what did you major in? I majored in urban studies with a concentration in political science. And I say I also majored in New York City and running, even though those are unofficial. <laughs> right. And what is urban studies? So it was like a liberal arts degree of liberal arts degrees, but it looks okay. at not the built environment, but all the factors that contribute to cities and why they are the way that they are. Okay. And it was fascinating. We learned about not just history and political science, but also sociology and urban planning and environmentalism and, and lots of different factors that just contribute to um, these cityscapes that we see and live in and plan. Interesting, okay. And uh, describe to me more what you mean by majored in New York City. <laughs> well, I loved the city. It took me about a year and a half to get used to it and understand it. But as much as I could, um, I tried to soak it up. And we were super lucky at Columbia. We had to take this core curriculum. And so we take art humanities and literature humanities and music humanities. And looking back, it's not as robust or diverse a uh, canon as they like sold it to us as but mm -hmm. the coolest part was that there'd be these works of art that we could go see in the city and one of my favorite i think that's maybe one reason i there's a couple reasons that i ended up with urban studies but one was because we were right there and we were seeing this happen looking at gentrification looking at food deserts looking at these museums, looking at these like amazing artifacts. Um, like there was one class called the history of the city of New York. And we had to go on field trips, which was awesome because you got to explore the city and, um, you know, learn about the parks and the rivers and the development. And it was, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And did you run track and, and cross country while at Columbia? Yeah, I ran, um, uh, both of those and then at the division one level they do indoor and outdoor track so in the fall we would run cross country and the winter season was indoor and then um spring was outdoor okay what was your favorite event or distance anything i was healthy enough to run honestly um <laughs> i had a lot of injuries and struggles as an athlete and so I was just grateful honestly anytime I could race um, and I was slated kind of pegged to be a 10k runner when I was being recruited um, but I never got there uh, to that distance I did do the 5k which I liked um, but yeah pretty much anything was I would take it okay and what were some of the like the injuries that you were they were struggling with during that time? Yeah, so right away when I was a freshman, I got a stress fracture in my foot. Um, and then I dealt with some eating disorder issues and uh, body issues like compulsive exercise that really contributed to just the string of injuries. Um, okay. So I, I, you think about an injury that runners get, I probably got it, <laughs> like <laughs> plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendonitis and, um, I got some more stress fractures and um, they, in addition to, you know, other things like mono and dealing with anemia um, that were kind of, uh, that anemia was like nutrition related. Um, so it was a, it was a battery list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like it. Wow. And I guess outside of the, 
the the list of injuries they had to deal with. Did you overall did you enjoy your experience as a college athlete? I would that's you know it's a compli- it's complicated. <laughs> I wouldn't trade it for the world and I'm so grateful for all of the experiences that I had because I feel like I learned lots of lessons and met some amazing people and um, learned from some good coaches. Um, but I would say it, it, it could have gone better. Let's put it that way. Uh huh. Okay. Was there anything that surprised you about life as a college athlete? I would say all of those issues, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Earlier, I mentioned how I bought into this concept of work ethic, which, yes, can be valuable, but there's another side to that equation that is rest and recovery and supporting the hard work that you're doing. Like, if you don't Mm -hmm. sleep, you're going to burn out (laughs) or crash. And if you don't feel your body and don't eat enough, um, the same thing goes. So there's, there's a bigger equation that I was still learning about when I was there. You know, I was definitely a people pleaser and a rule follower and a perfectionist. And so I did whatever I thought would give me an advantage. And some of those things hurt me more than they helped me. I see. Okay. And was there, I guess, this culture of, um, it's certainly gotten better, I guess, over recent years, but this culture of kind of work till you drop mentality, was that kind of prevalent, um, I guess, during your time while at Columbia? Yeah, and I would say it was more like the niche um, sport-specific version of that, um, where like, you know, high mileage is better and, you know, everyone's going to aspire to do this same high volume or high intensity training. And that sort of approach when you have a roster of 30 women, doesn't, it doesn't work for everybody. Um, And some, you know, so, and there was emphasis on, you know, sleeping and resting and stuff. But I, I do think that, especially at Columbia, that, that burnout culture, the pride in like not sleeping (laughs) was really big. So we're dealing with athletically, we were also dealing with, if not more intensely on the academic side. And um, so, yeah, I would pull all nighters and not sleep. And that was like normalized. My roommate and who I'm still friends with, she's amazing. Um, She's now a doctor and she was so good about sleeping. And I wasn't. And it was amazing to see that because she was the exception, I feel like. Um, but she did what she needed to do to take care of herself and it paid off. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess if you're if you're comfortable going into this, was the the sleeping disorder that you experienced, was that a product of I guess trying to become as best of a runner as you could, as like I guess what the standards of being a good runner at that time were, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, um, you said sleeping disorder. Do you mean eating disorder? Oh yeah. Eating. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, cause it's funny because you said like, I didn't sleep because I was trying to be the best student that I could be, which was ironic. Uh-huh. And then I also eating disorder was definitely because I thought that eating less was better. I thought that thinner was faster. I thought that dropping weight would help you. Um, or me become a better runner. You know, there's this very strong cultural image and pressure on all athletes to look a certain way um, or to weigh a certain amount. And we now know that that's BS. It's not helpful. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's not helpful to put outsized weight on that weight. <laughs> um, yep so many factors that affect performance and that affect the adaptations that your body gains when you work out, um, that, that we're really just putting way too much attention on those things. And I, I did that because I wanted to be the best that I could be. I had big dreams and I was really focused on my goals and I put a lot of my identity and my worth as a human in how well I ran. Um, and so that was definitely a huge part of it. Yeah. And that, 
idea of wrapping your identity with uh, your sport or the results that you you get out of your sport has been a theme that's popped up in I, th- I think the last four people that I've interviewed actually it's kind of it's mm-hmm. really interesting how if if you how dissociating yourself from the result or the outcome is I guess one of the best things you can do in terms of kind of your overall mental health uh, going forward and kind of long term. Totally agreed. And the funny thing is, it's kind of ironic that like, once you start focusing on the, say the process or your progress, as opposed to this like very concrete external finish line or identifier, you actually can get some great results. So I feel like that really feeds into my philosophy as a coach now and as a writer, where like if you are investing in yourself as a whole human and a whole athlete, not just focused or worried about the outcomes, you actually can reach more of your potential and actually have some great results, which is, which is funny because, you know, again, we're trying to de-emphasize the concept of, of win at all costs and the, the concept of, you know, you are your PR. Um, and a lot of people still love that about running that, you know, if you're a sub four minute miler, you're a sub four minute miler for life. And that's how a lot of people in the culture define each other um, or, or value each other. Um, but I, I do think that we're seeing a paradigm shift where, where other people are buying into this, you know, holistic approach and finding success doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. And so did you see yourself continuing, continuing to run competitively after college? Yeah, especially going into college, I did. I had, you know, big daydreams for myself and high hopes. But when I was in college, I was so focused on trying to run there and run well there that I wasn't really thinking about the future. I think I just assumed that I wanted to run. And I've always said that I wanted to run until I'm 90. I, if I get that chance. Um, so I've always said that I want to be a lifelong runner. But when I was there, I didn't really think about that um, a ton because I was so hyper-focused on what was right in front of me. I see. Okay. And what did you think you wanted to do for a career while in college? I, again, was so hyper-focused on running and grades. <laughs> I like, and, and, you know, t- making the most of my experience there yep. that I oscillated and in my running, when I went to Columbia, I thought maybe I would major in English or psychology, but I found a lot of, I mean, I have some friends who are English majors. They're all fabulous, but a lot of the people there really just liked the sound of their own voices and were really like, they wanted to be the next Jack Kerouac or something. And I didn't really like that vibe. Yep. Um, and then I wanted to be on the, the newspaper, but I couldn't because of my athletic schedule and my team. And there were some constraints around, you know, what you could or couldn't do schedule wise. And so I just, that's how I kind of fell into urban studies because it was interesting to me. And so I had so many different ideas about what my career would look like after college. I just was like kind of all over the place. Um, and actually senior year, I got a stress fracture in my femoral neck in the fall and I was super heartbroken because I had wanted that that year of running to go well. And I just poured myself into my thesis, which was about um, people keeping Walmart out of their communities, um, like, you know, grassroots initiatives to kind of, to keep them out. And um, so I just kind of started focusing more on urban studies. And again, I was all over the place. I actually applied for the Peace Corps, because that sounded super intriguing to me. I felt like I wanted to have some sort of positive impact. And then Mm -hmm. I applied to grad school. I was interviewing for jobs um, in New York City. Um, But some extenuating circumstances took me home back to Portland after all of that. And um, so, you know, it's it's funny to think about all these plans and ideas that I had. There were a lot of far-flung options. Right, right. But it sounds like, and to use your words, you were very hyper-focused and 
very kind of in in the moment while you're in college. Definitely. And you know, it's funny when you go to a school like that, people just assume that you either want to be a doctor or a, or a lawyer or go into finance. Mm-hmm. And I want none of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, looking at the nonprofit world or um, the, the public health sector and the Peace Corps, it was a little bit different anyway. So it was kind of funny because most people were trying to get into med school or, or law school or, you know, um, and of course there's a, a diversity of experiences and people that come out of there to do some awesome things, but there was a lot of pressure to, to kind of fit those, check those boxes, if you will. Right, right. Yeah, sure. And so what ended up being your first job out of college? Well, because I moved home, my dad was sick and I couldn't be out of the country for two years without like I wanted to be able to visit him if he got worse he had cancer which started my freshman year in college and so my mom had been dealing with that and being an only child I I just knew that I had to go home so I moved back home in with my parents and I started working at the running store Portland Running Company where I'd been working every summer in college um And then I got a job in land use planning for the state of Oregon um, and took that about mm, four to six months after graduation. Okay. And did you say land use? Yeah. Yeah. So Oregon robust land use planning um, system. And so I got involved in that. Did you enjoy it at all? Yes, I did. It was... um, I learned a lot and I, I got to see kind of the inner workings of, of how development and land use and environmental preservation uh, kind of happen. Um, but I was missing something and it was great, met some great people, learned a lot, but I, I knew I wanted something a little bit different, at least for that point in my life. And that's when I started getting back into coaching. I see. Okay. But you also, maybe this is later, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you also got into journalism or got your master's in journalism? Yeah, I did. So this whole time I was writing and blogging and I wrote some stories about running and then I started coaching again and I was able to write, continue to write about running and just kind of be in that space. And like I mentioned, I've always loved writing. And so I just was always a presence in my life. And um, my now husband was, uh, got into med school in Syracuse, New York at SUNY Upstate. And I ended up moving there after some coaching stints. And I met this amazing person who um, was involved in journalism. And she really sold me on it. It sounded amazing. And it seemed like a perfect solution for me to turn a skill and a practice that I loved into a career that could take me lots of different places and just be something in my back pocket. Um, because I'd been jumping around so much to different jobs and right. I was not sure if I'd be able to coach because it's kind of hard in the coaching world. You really have to put in your time and move to the middle of nowhere, especially collegiately. Um, and so it was a struggle to try and make that into a viable thing that would help you pay the rent. And so this master's program at Syracuse at the SINU Huss School of Public Communications was one of the best in the country. And there were all these awesome people. And it was an accelerated program for like 16 months. And it sounded great. And she, this woman that I met who I was running with uh, was an adjunct professor there. And so I just decided to go for it. And so, you know, I'd been out of school for, I don't know, let's see, five years. And I jumped back in and it was awesome. It was a great experience. That's awesome. And so once, after you get your master's, um, are you able to, I guess, put your journalism, journalism to degree to use and kind of get a career or job where you're like writing a lot? Yeah, definitely. I got a job with a magazine in Boulder. So my husband placed in residency in Colorado. So he moved to Denver. And um, I worked at a ski magazine called Ski Magazine. <laughs> and they also had another ski magazine called Skiing Magazine. Um, they're two different niches. Um, I think skiing now is only online, but uh, that was great. It was so fun. Um, I got to edit and, and write 
and that led to other jobs in the same industry. And so it was just, it was great because I was doing this craft that I loved and um, it was now my, my day job. That's awesome. And so I guess shifting gears here again, at what point in your life do you start coaching? So I'd kind of always been coaching in college. I would go back to summer practices at my old high school and help out there. And as I mentioned, I was working at a running store. And so I would be informally coaching friends and family, people that wanted to do a half marathon or their first 5K. Um, and then after college, I, I coached at the high school level in Portland. And then I got a job at Oregon State University coaching um, on their women's cross country and track team, which was fabulous. And when we moved to Syracuse, I coached there as well as a volunteer assistant and I was their meet director. And so it was another thing. So like running and writing and coaching have been like, they're these, it's like a braid of these three things that have woven in and out through my life. Right. And so I was kind of always doing it. Um, and I loved it. And what do you enjoy most about coaching? I think helping people reach their potential and helping them learn how to trust their own bodies and minds. Okay. And what's your overall philosophy as a coach? I would say I really emphasize an individualized approach and I say that performance and success hinges on health and happiness. Like those are foundational and they, they need to be present. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not happy doing it, it's, you're probably not going to last long doing it. So I completely agree. Yeah. 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 It's a lifelong practice. And that's something that, you know, if you want it to be there, it can be for you, be there for you in so many different forms. And that's an exciting, exciting tool to have in your back pocket. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so today, what services do you offer as a coach and like, who are the different clients that you work with? Yeah. So there's kind of two realms to that. The first realm is I'm an online coach. And so I work with athletes all over the world, actually, which is great. I've had a couple international clients, um, but I help them reach their running goals and for some people that's just getting back into running after a long layoff or getting into running after um, like an injury or just starting out for their first time. But the majority of my athletes are people that have been doing it for a while and are either in a rut or signing up for a big race or a big goal, pre-pandemic of course, um, race-wise. And a lot of them, there's a range of, of distances that they're doing um, both on the roads and on trails um, but it's it's great so I, I do that online through a platform called team run run and that's like a directory for coaches and so I have these relationships with these awesome athletes that are everywhere but the second part of my coaching is in real life um, and so this year I'm going to be coaching at the high school level I'll be a cross-country coach and of course with COVID-19 Things are totally different um, and the season and the year looks way different than it has in the past. So we're kind of right. adjusting to that. So and my fingers are crossed that we get to have some semblance of, of in-person um, races and the kids have had some practices, but limited in terms of how many people can be there. So we're just playing it by ear and I'm really excited to get back into that arena. Yeah, yeah. And on your web, on your website, you write how you help athletes with their running adventures. Why the word adventures? Well, I think it's not just about times. It's not just about results. Um, running is about the ups and the downs and the detours and what you overcome in your, in your practice and your process. And, um, you know, the views that you find. And so I think looking at, at looking at running as an adventure, as opposed to, I must get this Boston qualifier or I must PR right. the 5k really kind of encompasses a little bit more of my approach. Right. And that kind of goes back to the not identifying your, your self-worth and your identity with, with that result too. Right. And that's not to say we can't get after it. Like, of course, sure. I love 
my athletes to PR, but I just think we can take a different perspective than we have traditionally. And it's not all about, you know, domination and winning and bettering yourself. It's, I mean, it is about bettering yourself, but it's also about learning and growing. And those are really important aspects for me. Yeah. And so, so getting into your, I guess, running career now, have you, have you done any ultra marathons? Yes, I have. I got into them. So after college, I trained myself and raced on the track because I feel, felt like I had unfinished business and just coaching myself. I was able to PR and then I got into road racing and then I got into marathoning and I was going after a, an Olympic trials qualifier when it was a little bit slower at 248. Um, but then I just fell into this like it was this funny natural progression from 5k up to 50ks and <laughs> so i had a really good friend who introduced me to trail and ultra running in colorado and um so i think i've done about four 50k races at least and then some other like you know longer adventure days that weren't within the constraints of a race but were okay um, you know about 50ks i think um and it's been it's been awesome yeah that's cool do you have like a favorite, a favorite race distance? I would say 50 K. That's great. I was hoping to run a 50 miler this year. Um, it got canceled. Um, so I feel like any time I'm out on the trails is a, is a good distance. Yeah. 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 What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made when, uh, when preparing for a race? I would say, it goes back to what we've been talking about. I definitely have overtrained, which mm -hmm. has led to injuries. And I definitely have been sort of over invested in the, in the result or the outcome. So rather than just focusing on running the mile that I'm in, I, you know, would get super focused on where I wanted to be and where I thought I needed to be on that day to get to like, you know, from A to B. Um, and so that, that over-focus was a little bit much. Got it. I see. And so with like, I guess all of your, all of the injuries that you've, you've sustained over the years, what, what is it about running that's made you stick with it for all these years? It's a great question. Um, first, I think I just love it. It's the first thing that I felt truly confident in and fully myself in. Um, and it's also just been there for me. Like I mentioned, this thing that's showed up in so many different ways through my life. It's introduced me to amazing people. It's taken me to amazing places. And so it's just been this positive like river or braid that's come through my life. Right. And so when do you start to seriously take on the role of being this really big voice in the world of, <clears throat> excuse me, in the world of girls sport and running? That's a good question. I don't, um, I think it just was like an evolution um, of kind of finding my voice. I, I went to this um, amazing writing retreat called Wilder Running that was created by Lauren Fleshman, who um, is a retired pro runner. She's an elite coach. Oh, sure. Um, and also a writer herself. And I, I went twice. And at that retreat, I was surrounded by these amazing women who had so many strong, amazing stories. And that really helped me tap into my voice and find the courage to start talking about my own experience um, and really embrace the fact that this was like a collective experience, not just my own. And of course I had to get over some myopia and kind of like learn that, you know, I wasn't this like special unique snowflake. This was happening to so many people right. and there's like this collective community. And so there I really like got the courage and, and the strength and the resolve to just start speaking up more loudly about these things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what, what keeps you, continuing to to speak out and speak loudly about um i guess all of these topics that you're now such a big i guess voice on honestly just trying to make it a better make the sport better and make the world better for the people that are coming through it um so like 
I recently wrote this book, Girls Running with Melody Fairchild. And we both had a lot, we have still have high hopes for this book, but I said that we will be successful if we can make one person's life better for reading this book. If one athlete can tell a toxic coach to F off with their garbage <laughs> coach, then they, that athlete will be better. She won't have to, you know, succumb to some of these unrealistic pressures, these age old myths, and she will be embodying herself to her fullest potential. And that's, it's not just about telling people off. It's about finding your potential and following your own path. And so, um, seeing girls that are still going through these issues, or I don't know, like in the news, if you've been following at all, but there's athletes that are banding together at universities to call out culture that is wildly toxic and abusive yep. at like Wellesley University and University of Arizona. And that just reminds me that we need to continue to make it better. We cannot be complacent. And just because, you know, you know, a coach gets fired or something doesn't mean that these situations are still not going to arise. Like we have to keep the pressure on to keep changing it for the better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And as it relates to running, what are some of the specific, I guess, like old standards that are maybe unrealistic for many girls or women to meet? Yeah, I think a lot of those are hinged on appearance. So like what you need to look like to be a runner. Um, and, and this also goes for actually anyone, <laughs> all genders, all ability levels. Like we have a very narrow view of who gets to be a runner and who should be a runner, which is, you know, pretty exclusive and elitist. And, um, that another one would come back to weight, you know, talking about like how many pounds you need to be to run a certain time, which is hogwash. Um, and then also, this also goes for all athletes the expectation that once you find success, you need to continue finding that success or bettering that. And, you know, we have this expectation in running and beyond running that people will follow a straight trajectory up. And that's not the way life works. There's right. lots of bumps and dips and um, obstacles and it's natural to like find a meandering route. And so I think we need to, it would be helpful if we took a, a more realistic approach to folks' trajectory and development as athletes and humans. Yeah. And so who, I guess, generally speaking, is pressuring these standards upon girls and women? And like, where is this pressure coming from? Almost everywhere, like especially in the U.S. I can speak to that because I know that culture the, the best. And mm -hmm. it's it's part of like dominant cultural standards really. So like, especially runners, they're facing the general cultural standards of like what a woman needs to look like and diet culture and how you need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to, to fit a certain mold. But then you have even more intense niche sports specific pressures about, you know, again, what a runner should look like, et cetera. And Honestly, a lot of this comes from the cis hetero patriarchy, which is a mouthful, but we all exist in this framework where certain people have more power and privilege than others. And that mindset reinforces some of these things. And I think, you know, so like my own experience in my family and with friends and myself, my peers, my magazines that you'd read, um, people that are on TV, we're just inundated with these expectations all the time. And we don't even realize that there's a different way of looking at it. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's like a, a much more kind of macro, I guess, issue than it is, I don't know, like micro or specific. Yeah, and that's not to say we can't point out the micro or specific examples of it, but like in the book, we talk about Aunt Birdie and whatever diet she's on. And, you know, I'm sure Aunt Birdie means well, but when she's talking about her like fruitarian keto diet or whatever she's on, that's, that's one example of diet culture, right? And so 
you know, okay. but we can blame Birdie or we can ask Aunt Birdie to stop talking about how she's only eating bananas or whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's subject to these same pressures that we all are. And I think I've learned, especially in the past year, to try and give more grace to people that are maybe um, repeating behaviors or encouraging habits that aren't helpful. Like even within my own family, if someone says something that kind of triggers me and my, my eating disordered past, I'll call them out, but I'll also give them room and, and hope and support that they're learning just like I am um, in that we can change. And it's okay if we are, it's only okay if we're, we're learning and growing. Um, and so I think that's just an important part of this. Like we're all making mistakes all the time. And it's only okay if we're, we're learning and growing and bringing others along with us, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it does. It does totally. And so when, when did the like inspiration come for you and Melody to write the girls running, the girls running book? Like when was that moment when you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you, I guess, talk, talk with her and you're like, all right, we need to start writing this book. Yeah, we actually first talked about it years ago at a running camp in Oregon called Steen's Mountain Running Camp. And we talked about it then. I was like, look, I heard her talk and I was like, Melody, we have to write a book. We got to get this word out. But then recently I wrote in 2018, I wrote an opinion piece a little bit about her and about the issues that we've been talking about today um, in the New York Times. And I was like, Mel, it's now or never. And we were both at a place in our career and our lives where like, I felt like I could dive in and, and really drive the sort of project management and, and writing organization. Um, and it felt urgent, especially because of the news. Like I mentioned, these teams are coming forward. And then there was a woman named Mary Kane who came forward and talking about her experience with the Nike Oregon project. Um, right. And Mary Kane, she broke Melody's two mile record. Um, and so there was this continuity and it's so heartbreaking to hear that these things are still going on. The pressures that Melody faced, girls are still dealing with today. The, um, and, and so we, we just felt this urgency for getting it out. And so in the past like year and a half, we really just dove in as quickly as we could. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what were some of the biggest challenges in writing the book? Narrowing it down, because I think each chapter could have been its own book, and there are examples of books out there already or forthcoming books that tackle a lot of the topics that we, we go into. And we have, like, I think combined, Melody and I have run about 100,000 miles together <laughs> and coached at so many different schools. And so, you know, we could talk about this stuff for years. Um, so, right. you know, narrowing it down and just whittling everything away to really what the most essential information was, was, um, it was hard, but it was, it was an important exercise. Right. And so what are some of the, the topics that you touched on in the book? Like maybe provide like a quick, a quick summary, um, like for the people listening. Yeah. So it's a guidebook for young athletes and we, want to provide athletes with tools and information so that they can have an empowered running journey. We talk about training, we talk about competition, um, mental preparation, as well as puberty and hormones and how to deal with those and their implications. Um, and we also dive into eating disorders and food, other food and body issues so that athletes are going into their experience, wherever that is, whatever it looks like, with their eyes wide open and, and really armed with tools that they can use to navigate their own journey. Interesting. Okay. So you really take a holistic view and approach with the book, it sounds like. Yeah, and it, it's really inspired by Melody's journey. She's a phenomenal female athlete who went on to run as a professional and as a master's athlete. And so we use, it's not just pure information. We have some great stories in there about her experience. So there's different access points for all readers to, to jump in and find what nugget they need at that point in their running career. Got it. Okay. Awesome. And then getting into these last few questions here. 
So what do the next 10 years hold for you? Like if, if we were to meet again on the street in 10 years, what would you want to be telling me that you accomplished? That's a great question. And I honestly have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like really embracing the journey. I hope that, you know, maybe I will have written another book or an update to Girls Running with Melody. Um, And by then, I really hope that I will have run at least 50 miles in one go. (laughs) Um, Other than that, I'm open to whatever, whatever possibilities are down the road. Got it. Okay. What does your daily routine look like? Um, And let's go pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, well, always my daily routine starts with coffee. That is the most (laughs) important part of my routine. Every single day I go to sleep waiting for my coffee Um, and then some sort of movement, unless it's a total rest day, which usually comes on Monday. So I'll go for a run, whether I drive to trails or run here in the city in Seattle, um, and then get to work. And I have a very flexible routine um, because my my roles are are ever evolving and changing and being self-employed, I don't have to stick to a nine to five schedule. So some days I work longer, some days I work shorter. Um, but I try to try to do a little bit of coaching and writing and, um, you know, book related stuff every day. Okay. And then as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? That's such a great question. I think what it looks like, what's driving me has been this internal passion. Melody talks a lot about the fire in your belly. And before I met her, I think I had that. Um, And now it looks like just trying to make forward progress. I just have this internal, internal passion for putting one foot in front of the other and trying to make the world or my community a better place as I do that. Awesome. And then lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of advice or motivation would you like to leave the person listening who is training for the first 5k, 10k marathon, et cetera? I would say take it one step at a time. And that's something that even the world's best runners have to do. Awesome. Short, short and sweet. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Awesome. Elizabeth, thanks again for coming on the show. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Where can people go if they want to follow what you're up to and um, also get the new book? Yes. Yeah, so on my website, Elizabeth W. Carey, C-A-R-E-Y.com, you can find a link to the book, um, which is also available in your local bookstore or through Velo Press. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Elizabeth W. Carey. Um, And I'm on Strava as well, if you want to give me some kudos for whatever I did today. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. You can also visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time.